Good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here, and thank you, Zara and Debbie, for organising this, um, and Faisal, of course, for organising this absolutely fantastic and important event um, and series of conversations. Um, despite the rigorous academic debate that is clearly taking place, that is um, interdisciplinary and self-reflexive. Today, I want to talk a little bit about um, the coalface, as it were, um, and um, the public side of, of museum work, um, exhibition building, and the complexities that despite um, there has been an acknowledgement um, of um, non-Western modernities, and specifically South Asian ones, um, many institutions still struggle with finding a way to accommodate alternative narratives. So I want to explore a little bit today about uh, why that might be. So, voluptuous figures, a riot of colour, elephants, maharajas and many-armed goddesses, and the ubiquitous Taj Mahal. A teeming mass of people strewn across a subtropical peninsula, steeped in ancient wisdom, exotic, mystical, tantalizing, and purported to be the ultimate destination for finding oneself. And then there's India. <laughs> 5,000 years of human history, centuries of conquest and cultural commingling, a cradle of world religions all interwoven into the fabric of its daily life. A nation newly emergent from the imprint of multiple empires, forging its identity, the heaving mass of a billion people, all zealously competing and consuming in highly unmystical ways, whilst asserting their collective and individual place on the world stage. This formidable vista of humanity could hardly be timeless, homogenous, or merely mystical. Such a view may have been satisfying, even intoxicating, but has only really ever been partial. Diversity and continuity are found woven through the story of South Asian art, but over the region's 5,000 years of recorded history, a centripetal pull inwards has assimilated successive waves of invaders who arrived by sea or descended the country via treacherous mountain passes. So Indian art has long been described as timeless and spiritual and exotic, but this conclusion, as we know, is the outcome of tradition viewed through the lens of a monolithic art history which sees development as linear. This constricted and particular worldview does not accommodate the different cadence and patterns of development in South Asian art. As a result, it remains stuck at a single point within a system that is essentially unable or unwilling even to accommodate the region's cultural complexity. The linear projection of history along the single evolutionary arrow of time clearly derives from the intellectual tradition of Europe. But if one defines history as a sense of having a past, 
then South Asia certainly has always possessed a, a strong sense of its own history. Itihasha, Sanskrit history, is embedded within India's vast mythology, a combination that for South Asians is deemed natural and entirely unproblematic. So in 1947, when the British finally relinquished India, their relationship with it, and by extension that of the Western world, also changed. They were no longer able or willing to engage with her in the present tense. And from that moment, India, I would argue, and by extension South Asia, became a relic of the past. Impressive collections of South Asia's classical arts and exhibitions of its historic traditions have formed the mainstay of South Asia exhibitions, presentations in museums the world over. Despite the excellent historical credentials of exhibitions such as Maharajas at the VNA, um, Sultans of the Deccan at the Metropolitan Museum, or My Own Garden and Cosmos at the BM, the very success of these shows has simultaneously served to restrict the value of South Asian art to the pre-colonial period. Such sumptuous offerings have masked the diversity of contemporary cultural production across South Asia. For in the modern period, South Asia is still deemed to have little relevant cultural identity. So 30 years after Said's Orientalism, our struggle with the apparent polarity of East and West goes on. The handbook to the 1850 Victorian Albert Museum stated that there was no such thing as fine art in India, and thus followed more than 100 years of relegating Indian cultural production to the lower status of craft. So far from being unchanging and timeless, South Asian art has been subject, I would argue, to a particular kind of window dressing. This essentially mystical approach to India's art lingers in popular thinking, perhaps surprisingly, it's strongest in South Asia itself, where a contrast between the materialism of the West and the spirituality of India in the popular imagination to this day remains an irresistible paradigm. Our image of India has been shaped by Europe's earliest encounters with that country. At the shore of the mighty river Indus, when Alexander the Great was forced to curtail his, in, his adventure, Western civilization lost an important early opportunity to familiarize itself with the texture and complexity of India. However brief this exposure, nevertheless marked the beginning of an enduring interest. So I want to look at South, Asia's, South Asian art's particular and specific relationships to the body, to space, and to color, asking what they mean for cultural production in the region, and how this might relate to the modern period, throwing up different questions about South Asian art that release it from continually referencing developments in Western art history. The important thing about South Asian art is not what it shares with Western art, but what makes it different. Since the 19th century, Indian art was judged and graded on Western art's classical paradigm that equated a certain kind of artistic restraint and simplicity um, with cultural perfection. In this view, the opposite of classical restraint was decoration, which was represented decadence and presumed inferiority. So art became a barometer of society's cultural and aesthetic values, which in turn served to sustain the implicit notion of a Western superiority over the world's impoverished and culturally backward Eastern quadrant. Starting with or ornament or decoration, 
um, in Victorian England, the idea of decoration was viewed as a kind of vulgar overindulgent. And yet decoration or alankara lies at the very heart of the, of the South Asian notions of beauty. Indeed, in Sanskrit, the verb to decorate literally means to make enough. Sanskrit delights in metaphor and simile and is full of irony embellished with layers of alliteration. Thus, ornament was a prerequisite of beauty and anything lacking ornament was considered less than perfect or more accurately incomplete. But beauty is a dirty and incorrigible term in contemporary art circles, not unlike decoration for the Victorians was seen as feminine and therefore inferior. American Pakistani artist Anila Kayyum Agha uses beauty to transcend borders of race, religion, gender, and culture, to create a totalizing space that embraces all. A single bulb activates a laser-cut box casting pattern shadows that reference Islamic filigree across all corners of the gallery. The emotional motivation for this work was um, an idea that growing up in Pakistan, she felt seduced by the beauty of Islamic sacred spaces, but was confined to worship at home. And when she came to America later, she was welcomed as a woman, but excluded as a Muslim. So it's these sort of arbitrary categorizations that drove her um, to produce this incredible work. But few ancient civilizations have so tenaciously preserved their traditions. And an original facet of South Asian art is its conservative nature. India's modernist project was thus forged through its highly specific negotiation of its historic traditions, not through the rejection of them. Jamini Roy was the first Indian artist who can be described as both modern and Indian through an independent act of resistance. In the early 20th century, the prologue to agitation for Indian independence uh, produced a frantic search for roots and identity. He departed from his training to return to his uh, boyhood landscape, a Bengali village, and to recover the compelling visual coda that impressed upon him through a boyhood fascination with the folk decoration of a surface. So what is the relationship between tradition and innovation, between the old and the new? Where does creative output find its best expression, if not in the rejection of the past, but rather in simultaneously accommodating and transforming it? Roy rejected the two stars of colonial art, namely individualism and the idea of artistic progress, his formulation of the village as the site for the nascent nation were of critical importance in the creation of an Indian identity. So modernism's premium on innovation and originality fails to acknowledge the very different relationship to tradition in India and South Asia. Within the framework of European modernism, which puts a premium on innovation, um, being a few steps behind is just as bad as not being there at all, and repetition signifies artistic death. And as Pater Mitter has deftly pointed out, what the cognoscenti failed to grasp is Roy's emergent as a radical critic of colonialism through his art. By the logic of his own artistic objectives, this supreme individualist had now voluntarily returned to the anonymity of tradition.
In 2013, the Peabody Essex Museum, where I used to work, put on a show called Midnight to the Boom, Painting in India After Independence, which showcased some 200 works from the Hurwitz collection over three generations of artists from 1947 up to the economic boom of the 1990s. Hussein's man sits like Rodin's thinker amid, amid a chaotic assemblage of India's history, as you can see on the left. And on the right, Atul Dodia portrays himself as a Mumbai movie star with all the glamour of Bollywood gangland, while giving a clear nod to his own artistic heroes, Hockney and Kakar, who appear reflected in his glasses. It took the museum more than a decade from receiving the request to put on this show. But today, Salem is a town of 40,000 people, pretty much a suburb of Boston and really not on the way to anywhere. Sadly, in 2013, the Peabody Essex Museum could not find a single institution in the US, UK, or elsewhere to take the show. <coughs> Excuse me. So a huge opportunity was lost in bringing together this important show that in the end was only seen by a few hundred thousand people. So what does it mean to look at South Asian art in its own terms? Is there value in meaning or meaning in demarcating a geography, or are we simply perpetuating the ghetto? I would ask you to consider whether South Asian art has a culturally specific relationship to certain facets. The mix of sensuality and religion that characterizes so much of Indian art often confuses and even alarms Western viewers. The sacred and the sensuous share a space in a way that seems alien to sensibilities rooted in Christian attitudes to sexuality and religion. What's the motive for adorning the exterior of a temple with explicit sculptures? In the Indian worldview, beauty and sensuous form were always considered legitimate pathways to the divine. Representations of women evoked abundance and prosperity, not temptation and there was an open embrace of sexuality. Christianity, per comparison, has, com was commonly seen, has commonly seen the body as tainted, a fleshy obstacle to, the, to salvation. Contemporary art is usually represented by a turn away from or break from tradition. However, Indian art's relationship with the body pervades and continues into the contemporary realm. And I am specifically talking about Indian and not Pakistani or Bangladeshi at this point, which is something I hope we will discuss in the, um, a little later on. Um, exploring the role of embodiment, these works assert that Indian contemporary art has shaped and been shaped by concerns with the body which stretch back to millennia. The activation of a personal relationship with the divine through ritual represents a unique aspect of Indian religions. The relationship between the individual and their god is personal, and this connection is mediated by the body. So a series of works by Indian contemporary artists explore multi-sensory experience and engage audience, the audience in a direct and sensual way, either by using the artist's body within the work itself, through performance, or by activating, activating the viewer's own memories through smell, sound, or taste. These works privilege sensual interaction with the viewer in a way not dissimilar to interaction with the divinities of Hindu, Buddhist, or Jain art require of their devotees. Bhupen Kakar engages the viewer through acts of fantasy, 
drawing connections between genres of storytelling, the artist's body, and the viewer's own individual memories. The privileging of the beholder's encounter with the image is a criterion of value that perhaps needs to be reconsidered. We can consider to what extent this stems from the Indic concept of darshan, or seeing, associated with touching and knowing. Smell is the key sense in Gauda's powerful work, Obituary. The title is a direct reference to the Hindu tradition of cremation, another pathway to moksha. Here, Gauda has utilized the creative possibilities of destruction to explore the connections between memory and materiality, exploiting vulnerable media such as incense and wood to engage with the temporal temporality of the art object. And I'm just going to finish it because I've run out of time. Um, To conclude, India today, and sorry, South Asia today is a theatrical tableau that's conceptually and visually rich. From colorful daily encounters in streets, churches, temples, mosques, even the cluttered roadsides of its cities, one often finds what in Europe and America is re reserved in spaces for modern and contemporary art. Dadais, hybrid objects, aggressive pop graphics, evocative remnants of ritual, dizzying optical patterns, graphic innovative use of language are present in multitudes of variations across this landscape. But we remain on the outside of Asian cultures, looking in sympathetically, but framing questions based upon our own peculiar cultural assumptions and values. In a shrinking globe, such a posture can no longer be sustained. Given society's increasing pluralism, a deeper understanding has become imperative.